The age of humans is messing things up in many different ways. Not only is human pressure on the environment changing the Earth system in unprecedented ways, but trust in science is faltering while media and journalism remains fragmented. The consequence is a siloed world at a time when trust and collaboration is sorely needed. Science communication requires creativity, joy, perseverance, the courage to try something new, and actively finding ways to work around the weaknesses in the system. My guests today embody these values and are at the forefront of science journalism and communications. Dr. Maddie Stone is a freelance science journalist. She was the managing editor of the Gizmodo Earther Nature for Nerds blog, and her work has appeared in outlets such as Vice, National Geographic, Grist, The Washington Post, The Atlantic, and more. Owen Gaffney is a sustainability communicator and strategist for organizations such as our very own Stockholm Resilience Centre, the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research, and the Global Commons Alliance. He's also part of the editorial board for Now This Earth, a new social media-based science news company. My name is Andrew Mary, and this is Rethink Talks. So, yeah, thank you. Uh, great to have you both here, uh, Maddie and Owen. It seems like almost every day there's some new very strange kind of story that only now kind of makes sense in the fact that we have this world where humans are sort of in the driving seat but I wondered if you could share sort of what's a story that's kind of you've either written or has jumped out at you over the last few months that's really said ah this is something powerful or a new way that I can explain what why the age we're living in now is actually different to what's uh, come before. Yeah, I mean, I guess, uh, you know, I think thinking about, I mean, there's so many sort of like there's little sort of factoids on this, you know, we've um, uh, we've created enough plastic to cling film the earth, um, we've created enough concrete to, to create an exact replica of earth, two millimeters thick, um, and uh, yeah, that sort of thing, but, um, and, you know, the, the fact that 70% you know, of all birds um, on earth are poultry, our, our chickens, uh, largely. I mean, that, that sort of stuff with the kind of big picture, I mean, that they've come out over the last few years. Every, you know, it's almost like every six months there's a new research paper coming out with uh, uh, these kind of statements that really do make you sit up and think, uh, wow, this is, uh, this is a new way of looking at it. I think most recently, you know, the Das Gupta report uh, came out on the economics of biodiversity. I think it was the end of January. And uh, the way the BBC reported that was that, you know, they started off with, you know, Jeff Bezos's Amazon company is worth $1.5 trillion right now in market capitalization. The actual Amazon rainforest um, is worthless in terms of uh, market capitalization. It has, <laughs> it has no, no value in the, the, the global economy in, in the same way. And, uh, and that was the sort of kickoff point for thinking about, uh, you know, how we, how, we value, uh, how we value things, how we value our future. This, uh, these things kind of make you think that um, uh, maybe maybe we're not thinking about these challenges in the right way. Uh, the example that immediately comes to mind for me, um, as far as something that really hammers home the concept of the Anthropocene, was a study I covered for National Geographic in December. And so this was a nature paper showing that the mass of stuff humans have created. So 
all of the you know concrete we've poured, all of the cars we've built, all of the billions of smartphones that are being put onto the market every year now equals or exceeds the mass of all living things on earth. So we're sort of, we were sort of right at this inflection point in 2020, according to the calculations that went into this big nature synthesis paper. And that's just, to me, an absolutely staggering fact to consider. You know, you think about all the fish in the ocean, all the trees in every rainforest and boreal forest and uh, all the other plants and animals and microorganisms everywhere. Our best estimate suggests that all of that life is now outweighed by the stuff that comes out of our factories. And, and while the weight of the biological world has been relatively flat over time, even as, as Owen said, there have been you know, dramatic changes in the composition. There's more poultry than most other animals on Earth. Uh, the weight of our stuff is growing exponentially. And whether that's a scientifically meaningful fact or not, it's certainly, in my opinion, a very powerful symbol of our influence on the planet and on the scale and scope of the, the transformation we're creating. Um, so it's, it's physical evidence that, you know, could remain in the ground over thousands and millions of years to convince the geologists of the future that something really strange happened in our time right now. Yeah, yeah. Nothing, yeah. yeah. sorry, Owen. No, I was just going to say, just actually building on that, because that reminds me of a, a paper that came out of the Resilience Center about a year or so ago by um, uh, uh, Magnus Niestrom and, and co about this simplification, exactly this, Maddie, the simplification of the biosphere that, um, you know, we, we've had this, you know, three and a half billion years, the biosphere has been getting more and more complex and, uh, and in building this resilience but through this complexity. And, uh, and just in like a single generation, they, they charted out the extent we've simplified it down to just, you know, a few species, you know, with like 25% or 30% of uh, net primary productivity on land. So the um, uh, all photosynthetic work done on land, you know, a quarter of that is actually being, you know, channeled to humanity um, and, and, and channeled you know, via just a very, small number of species uh, and this this growth simplification has just happened kind of in the background as we've been sort of getting on with our lives and it's just um you know it's just it's just incredible to start thinking about that yeah, and i think the points that you both raised are particularly impactful when you compare it to how most people perceive their place on the planet and the size of the biosphere compared to human activity. Like, I mean, for many of us who've been working closely with this concept with the Anthropocene, it seems so self-evident. And yet, when you sort of jump outside our relatively small bubble, you realize this is just not that commonly understood. Or people might feel it in some really abstract way, but they don't really, really understand that. And to me, that seems like one of the the most kind of epic challenges of both science and science journalism is how do we actually communicate this idea and continue to kind of actually have it break through because it does change fundamentally so many of the ways that we see the problems, how we go about solving them, and yet the gap between what we know and what we know is required to address these things is so huge and so incredibly infuriating. What is the sort of overarching story of science? How do we kind of bring people into this kind of question and, and try to to move this forward? Because uh, sometimes it feels like we're shouting into a void. I think for me, the overarching story of science in the Anthropocene is that every physical, biological, 
ecological system on this planet is now being shaped in some way by human activity. You know, you can no longer study a coral reef without considering the context of a warmer atmosphere and warmer, more acidic oceans and sort of the profoundly negative impacts those are having on reefs worldwide, in addition to you know, pollution and overfishing and all the other ways humans are impacting the oceans. You can't study the physics of an ice shelf or a glacier without considering how rising air and sea temperatures are causing those physical processes that transform the ice to accelerate and to change. I mean, you can't even study the most extreme and remote environments on the planet without seeing evidence of human activity. I mean, um, there's been, I feel like this almost trickle of studies or reports coming out over the last a uh, couple of years on the Mariana Trench, which is the deepest trench on earth and new investigations of the Mariana Trench, new exploration, finding evidence of our presence down there in the form of literal garbage. So, I mean, what does this all mean for science? I think it means we're gonna need to find, you know, we're gonna need a lot more interdisciplinary teams and systems thinkers to understand what is happening to our planet. We're gonna need to break down the traditional silos that have defined different scientific disciplines because human activity really spans and permeates all of the earth systems now um, in ways that transcend, transcend sort of these uh, traditional disciplinary boundaries. You know, you know, you know I study the forest, forest, I study glaciers, like I study the atmosphere. All of those things are connected and we're seeing those connections so much more. And I think we should also expect the unexpected and be prepared to study some really weird stuff. Um, one example that comes to mind is another study I covered for Nat Geo back in 2019 about these strange smooth rocks that an environmental scientist in the UK had started discovering on English beaches a few years back. And it turns out that while they look like pebbles or stones on a beach, when you pick them up and hold them, they're extremely light. Um, you can kind of create indentations in them with your fingernail. And so what this scientist quickly discovered is that these are not rocks at all. They're facsimiles of rocks made of plastic. So what are hunks of plastic doing looking like rocks on a beach in England? Well, the researcher's best guess is that they came from you know, other plastic objects like car tires or, or toys or packaging or anything that were burned in campfires and then eroded down into these pebble-like shapes via waves and wind over years and years. So that to me is sort of the story of science in the age of humans. It's all this weird stuff that we need to expect more of and how that's going to force us to break out of our traditional silos. I mean, in terms of the big narrative here, uh, you know, I think COVID has changed things, is my sense. Um, I think the COVID crisis has given people a wake-up call on, on the scale of interconnectivity um, and uh, you know, how, how vulnerable we are, how fragile we are, how, how our society, even though it's phenomenally wealthy and phenomenally interconnected, uh, which in some ways you know, might increase resilience, in some way it creates, a new, it creates a new type of fragility, a new type of risk, these kind of networked risks um, uh, that we're seeing in cascading risks. Um, that, uh, uh, so, so this is definitely a sort of, some sort of wake up call here. Um, I think there's, 
the, some of the big picture stuff on, on climate, I, I feel, you know, it's, we, we get locked in these narratives of, you know, talking about 1.5 or 2 degrees or 315 parts per million, 415 parts per million, uh, which are very sort of abstract concepts for the, the, the world to, to get hold of. Um, and uh, uh, when, when in fact, the sort of what's happening in the real world um, is, uh, is absolutely you know, terrifying. A couple of months ago, UNDP in Oxford released a survey showing that 64% uh, of the global population acknowledged that we're in a planetary emergency right now, which I thought was quite um, quite an interesting result. I think that's a big shift in narrative to maybe five, ten years ago. I don't think we would have would have seen that. But at the same time, of those people who said we we're in an emergency, 30% of the population felt we were doing enough. It, we were all, we were recycling. We probably Probably, probably don't need to do much more um, type type of thing. Uh, so yeah, there is that. Um, uh, yeah, we still got some challenges there. Science is really in a, you know, a weird place right now in terms of how it sits in the public in many places. On the one hand, it's achieved nothing short of a miracle in producing multiple vaccines in just over a year for COVID nineteen, but on the other hand, you know, survey after survey shows that trust in science is, you know, lower than ever. How do we sort of reconcile the progress and the the insights of science with the sort of lowering of trust, and and how might we sort of bridge that gap through um, science, media, journalism, communications? I know that's a big question, but I'm going to start with you, Juan. Um, yeah, well, I, I you know scientists are still one of the most trusted groups in society, and environmental scientists uh, are one of the most trusted groups of scientists. Um, so I, I think uh, there is, in some ways, a, a good news story here. Uh, yeah, um, but uh, but I mean, I, I think the issue the issue is that the, these issues, even when they get front page of a Guardian or newspapers like that, for, or, or National Geographic, you know, you're often speaking to the converted. Um, and uh, uh, you know, when you look at the sort of whole media landscape, the environment is just like a, a tiny drop. Um, you know, it's it's not it's not punching through in in the same way, um, and that uh, you know that that somehow needs to change. But um, but it but it but it is. I mean, we're you know we're we're doing some work with Netflix and um, uh, at, at the moment, and uh, you know they're talking about their um, their their coverage of environmental issues, and uh, and the, the statistics are uh, really really quite quite impressive. I mean, um, in twenty twenty. Um, 160 million households, for example, uh, watched a sustainability documentary um, of uh, some description. So, you know, which they interpret as like this is a, a strong, strong interest in these subjects uh, and growing interest in these subjects. Um, so, uh, you know, I think uh, more work needs to be done. I think to um, to, to develop uh, that, that more content in this area. Yeah, I would just echo Owen that um, scientists really are still one of the most trustworthy groups out there. And I think that the importance of science, you know, despite the proliferation of all sorts of wild conspiracies and misinformation that we've seen over the last year with the pandemic, I think that for the vast majority of the public, um, the importance of science has really been re-elevated by this global emergency that we're in. I think what it's going to take for more people to start listening to experts, for people to start um, engaging with science more, is for more scientists to get out of their academic bubbles and start engaging with the world. 
you know, many Americans have never, many, if not most Americans have never met a scientist. And the one scientist who most people are likely to be familiar with in the United States is their TV weathercaster. So TV meteorologists, weathercasters have an extraordinarily high level of public trust. And when they start talking about, you know, how climate change impacts the weather, as more and more of them are starting to do through various climate communication programs, that is a vehicle um, through which a public audience that might not otherwise be receptive to climate news or might not seek it out starts to hear more about it. Um, so it's scientists who already have public trust continuing to harness that trust and deliver important information that we all need to hear. And it's the scientists who haven't really stepped out into the public sphere yet starting to think about ways that they can do so, even if it's on a really local level by going to community meetings or, or giving public talks and lectures or doing an interview for, you know, a story that relates to their subject matter expertise. Um, I think people are hungry for real experts to, to tell them what's happening. And when the scientists aren't there to deliver, unfortunately, there are all sorts of uh, sources of misinformation ready to fill in the gaps. Yeah, I mean, that's that's true. And I think you both made a really strong case for science. But I think it's really interesting that um, both of you in your own way are, are also looking at alternate forms of how do you kind of package and share and engage science. I mean, Owen, you know, you've been working on this whole narrative work for years and trying to do storytelling with science. Maddie, you have the science of fiction and been working with science fiction. So can you guys say something else about what are these alternate ways of how we actually get science to break through? Yeah, God, yeah. I mean, I, I love um, uh, science fiction as well. And uh, But, uh, you know, Andrew, I mean, you, you, your stuff, you know, you've you, you know, I remember speaking to you a few years ago when you published that paper on science fiction prototyping and then, you know, Wired covered it and then you had film producers emailing you wanting to turn some of those narratives into things. And it was just like, hold on, as a scientist, this has never happened to me before with a research paper. Um, so there's something about it that really captures people's um, attention. I really believe that science fiction is a potentially very powerful vehicle for science communication. And um, I believe this because I've, you know, seen this to be true in my work as a journalism, uh, as a journalist over, over many years now. So back when I was a staff writer and a science editor at Gizmodo and then Earther, we would try to cover the intersections between science and science fiction as much as we could. I, I some years back, wrote this incredibly long, like 4,000 word feature on the biology of all of the fantasy creatures in Game of Thrones. Back when Game of Thrones, the show was just sort of reaching the peak of its popularity for the first time. And I spoke with biologists who, you know, studied pterosaurs in, in the Cretaceous period to understand how dragons could fly, paleobiologists who studied actual dire, dire wolves from the Pleistocene to talk about the difference between those dire wolves and the ones we see in the show, which are actually quite a bit more similar to gray wolves, um, not surprisingly. But yeah, so I mean, there's a huge audience out there for science fiction, pop culture. Uh, the, these sorts of genre fictions are more popular than ever. And I myself am a huge science fiction fan. I grew up watching Star Trek, reading mostly science fiction and fantasy for fun. And so, uh, you know, these are these are stories and narratives that I love, and I love being able to connect them with um, with actual science. And 
I find that it really resonates with audiences. We, when we um, wrote stories about the connections between science and science fiction, when I was at Gizmodo and Earther, they almost consistently outperformed a standard science or a standard climate story. So they brought in people who wouldn't necessarily go to a climate change news site to read the latest doom and gloom study and got them to engage with science they might not have considered otherwise. So I think it's a really great vehicle for communication in that sense in order to, as a way of reaching a broader audience and tapping into these other interests they have and making them think about how those interests intersect with science. Um, I think science fiction is also very powerful as a space where we can sort of game out what the future could look like, um, not with, you know, mathematical models or scientific projections, but with our imaginations and where we can world build a better future. Um, you know, I, when I wrote my introductory post to my newsletter, Science Fiction, I, that was sort of the thesis of it. You know, science is our tool for understanding the world as it is, but science fiction is how we explore what the world could be. And by doing so, we're creating this, you know, emotional connection to the future, this way of imagining a different world that we can then harness to meet some of the big challenges of the present. Now, I think as we move to sort of final words, maybe we can do a little bit of science fiction prototyping here and just say something a little bit like, you know, I think both of you in your own ways are both being experimental and also facing some of the very unique challenges of the current kind of digital media landscape and, and communications work. Um, so it feels very much like this whole space is in transition. So I wonder if, if you could both just share some sort of final reflections on on how you would hope uh, that sort of science journalism things might evolve over the next few years and, and how that might keep pace uh, with the scale of some of the challenges that we're facing. Of course, you don't have to give such a positive spin on it if you don't want. I guess the biggest trend in, in the world over the last few decades is that the, the flow of information, the way information flows in the world has changed. Uh, and that's, that's a big, profound Anthropocene change that's also happened kind of without anybody really noticing until suddenly, okay, this seems to be undermining democracy uh, with uh, social media and things like that. So that's a kind of like, that's a, that's the big challenge, I think, over the next um, few few years for, for us in our work, as we're talking about the need for very rapid transformation of society to stabilize Earth. But it's actually become more difficult to distinguish fact from fiction um, for, for, for a lot of people. Uh, but I, I think the problems, you know, it's, it's talked a lot, a lot about in the media now in how do we deal with this. I think it's actually really, really simple. There's, um, you know, a, a few people who are writing those algorithms uh, for, for, for these mass media. They could rewrite those al algorithms and instead of support purely engagement, but um, support societal goals. Um, so, so I'd like to uh, kind of be thinking and, and working with people on that over the next um, uh, next few years. Yeah, I have um, I have sort of a pessimistic view on this, and I, I need to do some personal science fiction prototyping and reflecting to think more about how how we can create a sustainable space for really good science journalism going forward. As Owen says, there's these you know social media algorithms that dictate so much of the information we see, and 
traditional media has sort of been chasing those social media algorithms for years to years, kind of pivoting from one platform to another, one media to another, because Facebook tells us that, you know, now we need to be um, using Facebook Live and Facebook videos. And all of a sudden that that's not the case anymore. And that source of media traffic dries up and maybe we should all be on Twitter or Instagram or TikTok or, you know, what have you rewriting the, the, you know, re reworking how ads are presented on our page so that they rank higher in Google searches. And so this, uh, this digital transformation has created a lot of angst and, um, uh, trouble for the traditional media, you know, and journalism landscape, which has really been, evolving dramatically in recent years. Um, you know, just in the past year, thousands of journalism jobs have disappeared and entire publications have gone under because the ad revenue has dried up um, in the COVID era. Um, at the same time, I guess on a more positive side, we are seeing the rise of platforms which allow single journalists to strike out on their own and build an audience devoted to their, their content. And um, now how many people are going to be able to make a real living doing that is still to be determined. And it's not going to be everyone. And there are pluses and minuses to that sort of lone wolf journalist model. Um, as someone who has tried it with my newsletter, but also works with a lot of editors at different outlets, I really value having editorial feedback and the layers of accountability that come with that. Um, but as traditional jobs at traditional publications continue to dry up, I think we're going to see more and more folks giving independent newsletter models or, or different models to try for better or worse. Um, I would say that for good science journalism to continue to exist, we, we need, I, I mean, I'm almost going to make a call for traditionalism here. We need outlets that value the specific skills that a trained science journalism brings to their, brings to their work and um, to pay to support folks with those science journalism skills. What's, what's happened, what I see happening at a lot of outlets is science journalists, um, you know, people with years of experience covering studies and scientific issues, some who have a PhD, others went to grad school and got a master's in science journalism, are, are being replaced with general assignment reporters um, with the expectation that someone without that specific critical eye of a science journalist will be able to do as good of a job. And we've seen again and again that that's just not the case. So Outlets need to recognize that good science journalism matters, that the public is hungry for it, and they need to put their money um, into it and, and pay workers a, a living salary and pay their freelancers a living wage. So um, that's that's my plug for traditionalism, and I'm going to do a little science fiction prototyping to, to think about more creative and innovative models for how science journalism could move forward. You've been listening to Rethink Talks, a podcast produced by the Stockholm Resilience Centre at Stockholm University. For more info, head over to our website at rethink.earth and don't forget to subscribe.